Hello, hello. Are you out there, Tangent Talk fans? We know you are. I have to introduce the cast, the members who make this happen each and every time we step into our virtual studio. And since today's episode is focused on Coach Davis, Hubert Davis, that is, we're going to do something a little different. You know, we're, we're talking about this now controversial press conference because of one statement Coach Davis made. So I'm going to ask the cast to pretend that we're all at a basketball game. And so what do you have in your hand, Dark Juan? Do you have a, a can of beer? Do you have one of those big foam fingers? What's, what's going on over there? I'm, I'm going to go with the big foam finger and the can of beer. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dark One. Let's go to ladies. What you wearing at this basketball game, T-Off? I'm a tennis fan. But, <laughs> I, <laughs> but if I was at the basketball game, I'd probably be wearing jeans and a jersey. And looking quite fly. I'm certain of it, T-Off. Well, we're glad that you are in the building. And Ildris, what you got going on? And are you sitting between two foxy women? Probably so. What's going on with you at the basketball game? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it depends. If you're at the uh, Hawks game, then it's more sort of atmosphere is like the club. But me personally, I would be focusing on the game in and in the jersey and just uh, sitting back. I hear that. I hear that. Notice he says it depends if you're listening. <laughs> well, Dark One, Tioff, Helper, I am glad that you all are here today. And so are our listeners. And again, this is season six, Race, Power, and Respect. And we are talking about Coach Davis. Don't know him? Let's educate you. Hubert Davis is the University of North Carolina's first Black basketball head coach since the school began playing the sport in 1910. Y'all doing the math? That's over 100 years. Clearly, Coach Davis has much to be proud of and much to celebrate. And he says, quote, I'm also very proud that my wife is white. He shares this during the press conference, and I learned that it's also called a presser. I'm hip. His presser from April 6th of this year, you guys. And that press conference or presser was introducing Coach Davis as the first Black head coach at UNC. Now, for all reasons, he should be proud to have a supportive wife. For all reasons, we should shout out our spouses, right, and our loved ones when we are being recognized. And was this comment, I'm also very proud that my wife is white, was it a blunder or a peek into Coach Davis's deep-seated thoughts on race? We're going to explore that. But before we do, Helbra, you there with your jersey and looking suave at this basketball game. Could you could you tell the audience a little bit more about Coach Davis? <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, so being a big basketball fan, I've I've known who Hubert Davis is for a long time. From his history as a player, he was actually born in North Carolina, I believe, and raised in Virginia as a teen. He did attend UNC from, I believe, 1988 to 1992, I believe. And at least one of those seasons, they made the Final Four, which is prominent because, you know, there was a big gap or a big drop off in how good UNC was from the time Michael Jordan left to the time that uh, Hubert Davis was on the team and they were able to make the Final Four. So 
needless to say, he has a lot of notoriety in North Carolina before getting this job. As a player, I most remember him from when he was on the Knicks. And also, again, he was a part of that rivalry between the Knicks and the Bulls, most notably during those years when Michael Jordan retired the first time. And the Knicks and the Bulls played in the playoffs. I believe in one of those games, he actually made the game-winning free throws. And um, I also remember when he played for the Dallas Mavericks, and he also played for the Washington Wizards during one of the seasons that Michael Jordan was there. So he has a lot of ties to Michael Jordan. And most notably, I remember him for being, you know, a three-point specialist like that of, you know, a Ray Allen or a Kyle Korver or a Steve Kerr for everybody that knows basketball. And he was the assistant coach for North Carolina's basketball team from 2012 to present. And with North Carolina not making the tournament this season, I guess Roy Williams just, you know, realized it was time for him to retire. So he retired and Hubert Davis was given the job and everything leads back to the background that you just gave on his press conference on getting that job. Thanks for that, Helbra. Thanks for that. Anything the other cast members want to add, Tioff or Dark One? Anything else you want to add about who uh, Coach Davis is leading up to this press conference, and then we'll we'll dive into the presser. Not much, really. I think it'll just covered most of it. Just that I think in thinking of taking things into context, Hubert has always been well spoken and educated. Some athletes aren't the most well-spoken, but he's always been intelligent. So it makes it even more interesting to understand his psyche in his statements. When you ask, was it a blunder or not? Because he's always been pretty well-spoken. So, yep, just wanted to add that. No, that's a good point. Tee off? Um, I think the fellas covered it much better than I I could. So, yeah. <laughs> Don't give them that much credit. <laughs> that's, that's a tennis girl. <laughs> I'm a tennis fan. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I know, guys, that this is what a billion dollar industry. Is that what we're saying? College basketball is estimated to be a, a, a billion dollar industry. Yeah, absolutely. About a million, a billion dollars. And, and then I'm sure there are, there's other money being made off of it beyond the schools in terms of advertising and all the rest that goes on around it. TV rights, all that. It's probably a few billion dollars. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, incredible, you know, and so obviously being a head coach is a pretty big deal, right? And the first African-American head coach. So let's let's drill right into this presser. And uh, if you visit our website, thetangenttalk.com, there is a link to the transcript for this uh, presser. And so I'm going to go to one of the questions. We're going to bounce around on this transcript because while the quote, I'm very proud that my wife is white is a quote from the presser, there are other interesting comments made by Coach Davis in April. So again, for those who may not have heard, the question was to Coach Davis, what are your feelings about being the first Black head coach at UNC basketball? And have you had an opportunity to speak to Charlie Scott, who is the first Black scholarship basketball player at UNC? And so Coach Davis responded, quote, I have not. And before I came down here, I had a note on my desk saying that he called. And I'm so looking forward to giving him a call and having a conversation with him. It is significant, Steve. It's significant that I'm African-American and I'm the head coach here. 
it's significant. I know that in terms of division one head coaches all around the country, only 26% of the head coaches for division one men's basketball are compromised. And I think you meant comprised by minorities, specifically African-Americans. I know that it is significant that I'm the fourth African-American head coach in any sport in the history of the University of North Carolina. I'm very proud to be African-American, but also very proud that my wife is white and I'm very proud that my three beautiful, unbelievable kids are a combination of us both, end quote. So again, nothing wrong with celebrating your family, right? This is an amazing milestone achievement, nothing wrong at all. So why did it not sit so well, Tiof? This, that whole situation, it's just odd <laughs> to me. Um, I don't even know where to start with that because it it just, his comment just seems so random to me. And I'm, you know, as we're sitting here discussing this, I just keeping, is there some context that the public isn't aware of? Yeah, it does beg that question. But, you know, let me help you out here, Tioff, because it is odd. And we all know that the Twitterverse, of which our very own helper is a part of, doesn't take any <laughs> any pause. It doesn't take any days off when it comes to firing off about what it is to, to make a blunder or or not. You know, Twitterverse is always going to weigh in. So specifically, I want to I want to get to some of the comments that were <laughs> made on Twitter after that comment, because Tioff, you're absolutely right. It, it was odd. And again, we're not saying that there's anything odd about acknowledging your family. There's nothing at all wrong with acknowledging Mrs. Davis. What was just odd was it's where was the context in terms of that question. So let's talk about what Twitter weighed in with. And I'm going to share with you guys some of the uh, Twitter comments that I thought were pretty interesting. So the first was, imagine being so entrenched in white supremacy that you mention your wife's white race in regards to an accomplishment of your own. Again, imagine being so entrenched in white supremacy that you mention your wife's white race in regards to an accomplishment of your own. I'll read one more. This is from Mark, M-A-R-C, at For the Culture. He says, remember that being proud to be Black isn't inherently anti-white, and you don't need to give a shout out to white people whenever you voice your pride for being black. So those two tweets, one being from Harriet Tubman's Gunsmoke at Be More Beloved. She's the one who posted the uh, Imagine Being So Entrenched. And then, of course, Mark at For the Culture posted the Being Proud to Be Black Isn't Inherently Anti-White. Let me just ask, Tioff, since you have the floor, what are your thoughts on those two tweets? Agree? Disagree? I, I do kind of, I do agree with those, but still for me, it begs the question where there's some attacks toward him on social media about his wife being white, that once the announcement was made and he did the press conference, that he felt the need to say that. Because I'm not against interracial marriages at all. Right. It's just, I, I'm just really having a hard time making sense of why he felt it was necessary to say that around him being appointed to that post. I'm I'm just not sure what one <laughs> has to do with the other. I, I'm just having a hard time 
making <laughs> sense of it. I'm literally scratching my head behind it. Right, right. And, I, you know, you bring up a good point, Tioff, that was there something that we, the audience, were not aware of? Was there something unkind said about Mrs. Davis? I certainly hope not. But again, it, it begs the question, why was that introduced? Starquan Helper, you guys are being pretty quiet. What are your thoughts? I mean, do you agree with what was posted? Those were just two tweets. I'm sure there were others that may have caught your attention. What are your thoughts? I agree with both of them. And I love the Twitter name, Harriet Tubman's Gunsmoke. Um, <laughs> she is winning all day, every day. Um, <laughs> so, but I thought about his statement and I wanted to not be, not to have a knee-jerk reaction and, and just be contrarian about it. And I thought to myself, maybe he was trying to play down the whole first black coach thing a little bit. He, you know, he wanted to acknowledge his pride in his achievement, but I think there is some background in that it is North Carolina. It's been over 110 whatever years that they've had coaches and never had a black coach. And I think I'm considering that possibly he didn't want his acceptance and his speech, let's say, to be all about the fact that he was black. And I think it was a poor choice in his method of, if that was his, his impetus, that it was a poor choice in his method of trying to balance things out a little bit or diffuse the blackness of the moment a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that he, you know, because I've, I've always seen him as being an intelligent, well-spoken gentleman, being a Nick fan, you know, I've, I've watched him for years and heard him in numerous other post-game press conferences and things of that nature. So I'm thinking that he just realized, you know, this is North Carolina. And I am the first black coach and I don't want to scare the fan base too much that it's going to be all about this black coach thing, because, you know, obviously, if they've taken this long to have a first black coach and only four black coaches in division in their division one sports, he probably didn't want it to be all about that and more so maybe try to bring the rest of their core audience, let's say, even though North Carolina is a very popular team nationally, back into the conversation. And he just picked a really kind of out of left field sort of way of trying to do it in the spur of the moment, trying to be, you know, compassionate towards his flub. So do you think he was trying to stick it to the man? I don't think he was. I think he was trying to, to not disenfranchise the man, which is a huge proportion of their fan base. But the man takes issue when one of, quote unquote, their women takes up with the black guy. So I, I don't know. It's just, again, it's, mm. it's that, is a good, that is an interesting take to be considered as well. I've never seen him as being that direct, let's say, in things of that nature. I mean, I've never heard him speak about anything political ever. So I don't, I don't see him as some sort of activist per se. He may well be, but I've never heard about any of that from him where he would try to stick it to the man per se. Yeah. And, and you know, what makes it so confusing is that he gave all the history. He knew the percentages. He knew right. the, all the years. He knew right. how, how few black head coaches there had been at the school. And he still chose to dilute the accomplishment with his wife's race, you know, and as I was thinking about it, I think about the quote that a lot of people say about basketball players and the women that they get involved with. Generally speaking, it's when it's not a positive thing, but they say, you weren't in the gym shooting free throws with me. And for him to bring her into that as if she was in the gym shooting free throws or, you know, spent years being an assistant coach to earn that position really is confusing. 
It's very confusing. And I, I, one of the things you said that I thought was interesting, Dark One, is you talk about like Coach Davis possibly wanting to soften this moment for blackness, right? One of the um, articles, and we posted this to our, our website, thetangenttalk.com, one of the articles I found quite intriguing was written by uh, Damon Young. And the, the headline is, Hubert Davis was so close to having a forgettable press conference, right? So in this article, Mr. Young writes, No one who is Black and is also comfortable talking about race says African-American. It's formal, it's robotic, and it just feels like an overcorrection. And he doesn't have the excuse, referring to Davis, of mirroring language of the question, which often happens in situations like this because in the question, the word Black was used, not African-American. So the fact that Davis says African-American, it was a choice. It was also a choice to express, as his answer concluded, how proud he is to have a white wife. And so, again, as Tioff mentioned, we're not against interracial marriage. We're not against people celebrating their families. This is the best time to celebrate. If you guys haven't watched one of my favorite movies of 2020, Marie, and of course, I'm forgetting the name now. It's a movie that was shot in Black. Malcolm and Marie. Thank you. Thank you, Helbra. One of my Um, least favorite movies. (laughs) What? I loved it. We'll have to have another episode on Malcolm and Marie. I can't believe I um, had a miss there on the name. But yeah, you know, if you that that movie, and I'm not giving anything away, that's the premise. Malcolm didn't acknowledge Marie in his acceptance. And the rest is a two-hour rant about it. Some people say, I think it was brilliant artwork. But I move on to say, no one is making Coach Davis wrong for acknowledging his wife. It's just, why tone down the Blackness? What say you, Helbra? Yeah, I think just something we're not touching on is just this season's theme is race, power, and respect. So just like our last episode about Meghan Markle, and I think I've made this point as well, I just believe in that moment, Hubert Davis positively correlated him being married to a white woman and having biracial children with the power and respect that comes with him having that coaching position. And on top of that, being the first Black or African-American man to have that position. And I think he just had a brain fart and he said that and he said that's what that's what he was feeling. I'm proud that my wife is white. I don't think you can in this situation take what someone says and make it any more or less than what it is. That's a good point. Well, there was another question during this presser that drives the point that we're getting at, which is. Does Coach Davis embrace or not his role as being the first African-American head coach? Here's the question, guys. How will you embrace that role of being the first African-American head men's basketball coach at UNC? And when it comes to raising young men in this day and age with everything going on in this country, what have you learned from Coach Williams who, by the way, was a Caucasian coach, when it comes to teaching these kids to be professionals on and off the court. It's a pretty long answer that Coach Davis gives. I'm going to drill into the second paragraph. In this case, Coach Davis is actually referring to 
a fellow player, a basketball player by the name of Garrison Brooks. So, and, and let me give more context. Garrison Brooks called him into, he says, he calls me into my office and said, let's just sit down and talk. And I said, just tell me what you're passionate about. Is it police brutality? Is it systemic racism? What's on your heart? And then he goes on to talk about the thing he talked about was education and equality. So, you know, from this, you get the sense that Coach Davis isn't tone deaf when it comes to race relations. So is it true then, Halbra, your comments that he finds an achieving moment is to bring up the fact that he has a diverse household? Is that the case or are the two unrelated? Yeah, I believe that they're unrelated in, in this case. I believe he suffers from, or at least in that moment, was suffering from some type of, of tokenism. And he aligned being married to a white woman with him achieving such a notable position in sports and which has been his life. And, you know, I hope we continue to unpack that during this episode. Do you agree or disagree, Tioff? Oh, just listening to what Ildris is saying here, it's just making me reflect on it even deeper. And maybe he saw that because for some people, and again, you know, this isn't to disparage interracial couples or interracial dating. I date interracially myself. But for some people, when it comes to having that type of marriage or relationship for some people of color, they do have this attitude to where if they have dated or married somebody white, that they've arrived already or that they've somehow separated. Because let's, let's be real about it. When we look at the Black community or being Blackness, there's lots of negativity associated with being Black or being a part of the Black community. So for maybe for him mentioning his wife, that was his way. I've already separated myself from Blackness because I've married this white woman. So me being the first Black coach isn't an issue because I've already married a white woman. Mm. And so this that ties back, I think, T off to what Dark One was sharing. It's almost as if he wanted to, and I'm paraphrasing what Dark One said, almost like he wanted to lessen this moment of blackness. Why is that a yeah. problem, Dark One? Well, yeah, and I, I think it speaks to one of the Twitter comments, which is that we're so entrenched in white supremacy. And I think while there have been tons of black athletes that have come out of North Carolina and succeeded there and gone on to the NBA in terms of basketball. And, and numerous other sports as well, that there's an environment that he's operating in. And I do think that, again, given the, how long it took to have a first Black head coach in basketball, that that school to some degree has been entrenched in white supremacy in that they took 110 plus years before they selected a Black coach. And I do think that that is a part of the reason why he felt it was appropriate to do that. We do have to make him accountable for his words and actions and while I try to not just be critical of him, you know, critical of his statement, when thinking critically of it, I do think that the environment he's operating in definitely had an impact on the words he said and what his value system is. Yeah, it, it's a great thought that maybe, you know, going back to your comment about toning down his blackness, it definitely seemed like he didn't want the spotlight or attention to be so much on his achievement as first black as he wanted it to be his achievement that he is the next head coach. And I wonder, is there 
is there and was there room for Davis to both be proud of being the next head coach and being proud to be the first black head coach? I'm not sure which one he had he gave deference to, but it definitely didn't sound to me that he was celebrating being the first black head coach as much as he was being extremely grateful to continue the legacy of the previous coach. And so, and we'll get to that a little later in the discussion because there's another question (laughs) presented to Coach Davis where he talks about not wanting the former coach to even remove his personal effects from the office. And I'm thinking, this is now your office, Coach Davis, take it. I don't know, and it gets touchy when we bring up religion, but I think it's also interesting that he spent a considerable amount of time addressing a question from the audience from someone who talked about spirituality. So again, throughout the episode, we're going to be giving you excerpts from the transcript. One question was, I've heard you say a couple of times how much you've learned in your years in Chapel Hill. And one of the things was that you became a Christian. I think that goes back to Coach Smith also being spiritual, being so spiritual. Can you briefly talk about your faith and how that plays into your family and your job now? Right. And again, pretty lengthy answer. But at the end, I just want to share with you the his wrap up. He says, Coach Davis, I was starting to understand the sacrifice that Jesus has made for me and how much he loves me. And two days before my junior year of college, I became a Christian. And instead of being upset that Jesus has taken away the most beautiful person in my life, my mom, I'm thankful every day that he gave me the best mom I could ever have for 16 years. She's here. She's here. She's here every day. The way I treat my wife, she's here every day. The way I treat my children. And so my faith in Christ is the foundation of who I am. And when I say that I will walk this path in my own shoes and my personality, my own shoes and my personality is my faith. Is it possible then that for Coach Davis, what's most important is giving, as Christians would say, God the glory? giving his wife the glory and not so much wanting to put the spotlight and recognition on being the first black head coach. That's reasonable to think that, but what does the color of her skin have to do with that? Yeah, we can't let him off the hook for now. No matter what. <laughs> I really want um, to let him. He just, yeah. I look at his face. Yeah. He looks so sweet and, and kind. And I'm wondering if we're being unfair. But this is why we're having this discussion. This is why we brought it to the Tangent Talk studio. Because he you didn't know? thank the Lord Jesus Christ for my wife's support in getting to this point in my life. He says, I'm grateful my wife is white. And I'm like, huh? Right. It, it, it was definitely awkward. As a matter of fact, T-Off, that reminds me of the skit I wanted to open up with. Does anyone want to play along with me? This will be a 10-second skit. Yeah, I'll play along. All right, great. So, Helbra, pay me a compliment. It can be anything. Well, Luna, you are absolutely intelligent. I appreciate that, Helbra. And guess what? My dog is a shih tzu, and I'm very proud of that as well. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? It's, it, it's as Tiaf says, it's unrelated. <laughs> I can be proud that my dog's a Shih Tzu, and I can also be proud of that very generous compliment that Helper just paid me. So I don't know how he, Coach Davis, 
thought that it made sense to say what he said. I'm really trying to scratch the surface and, and determine, was it because he, he esteems his Christian values to be more important than him being the first black head coach? Is it that he esteems family as more important than him being the first black head coach? I, you know, we're delving into the psychology here. Talk to me. What are your thoughts? I mean, I don't see how one and two match. Like we've just been saying, I don't see how if somebody asks me about, you know, how I feel about being the first black coach, the thought comes to my mind that, well, I'm proud my wife is white, unless that's what he meant in the same notion that a lot of black men who date or marry interracially and they give the reasons why they do and you know, sometimes they're disparaging towards Black women. Sometimes the reasons they give are other reasons, especially him being a former Black athlete. And that stereotype already exists amongst Black athletes and, and Black entertainers. I think he just falls along with the same mentality that those athletes and entertainers have to why they date and marry interracially is why he does and why he said that. In my previous two comments, I've tried to think from his perspective, but just thinking from my perspective, because I know you all expect me to flame Hubert, but, you know, in thinking about it, it does seem like he conflated the two things, you know, that he, he does see some power and respect in his marriage. And he may be trying to market that to the audience so that they can be aware of his quote unquote social standing, having quote unquote married up in his perspective. Mm. So he wants you to know, hey, I'm married for a white woman. So the fact that I'm a black head coach here, it's not going to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, it, they really don't connect. But I do think that his statement about being married to a white woman can also connect to his strong religious beliefs, because that is also quote unquote acceptable. I think it would be much different if he had said, well, you know, I'm Muslim and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very proud of my Muslim faith. If he had been saying that at North Carolina, I think it would, it would be received much differently than him saying he's a proud and practicing Christian, which is falls in line with the greater American religious belief system as a whole, too. So I think all of it says, I am trying to let you know that I, I am more like you than I am not like you, really, even though I am Black. And I think it really does speak to the institution of coaching, really, in college sports, professional sports, for that matter, too, in that, you know, most coaches are not, even though a lot of these major sports are, they're coaching a lot of black men, that most coaches are not men of color or even women of color, for that matter. So I do think it is him trying to quietly let people know that he is accepting of their culture and white people, really, their culture. He's, quote unquote, a part of it. He, he's definitely putting some milk in his black coffee. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, another key to this is speaking of his background, I believe the town he grew up in Virginia is, I think, like 78 percent white. And, you know, of course, he attended University of North Carolina. I'm not sure. Somebody please fact check me, but I'm pretty sure it's about the same if we're talking about racial demographics. So I think that plays a part into his mentality and why that all just kind of vomited out in that press conference. And I think it's just that's what he was surrounded by his entire life. So I just think that how he views status came forward in him saying that. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, but I can't really put it's, anything else on it than that. 
So I'm just going to say to uh, Ildris, you feel like he basically felt like tying in his wife's skin color into his new achievement was somehow showing his his status was already elevated or an elevation in status? Well, I mean, the point I just made was, or was trying to make was just that, let's see, he's 50 years old. So he was in college in the 80s. He was, you know, a teenager and in college in the 70s through the 80s. So he grew up in a town that was 78% white. Of course, him being a standout athlete, he already had status. And I think what came along with that status was an access to whiteness, not only an access to whiteness, but an access to whiteness that very few other black men that were in the same community that he grew up with had. But he's had that access for a long time, though. Right, if right. He's 50 years yeah. old. He's a former professional athlete. He grew up right. in a majority white area, and he's probably, before his wife, he probably dated, you know, white women in college. And when mm-hmm. he was a young athlete, he's probably dating white women and eventually married one. So it's not like he just married her. So well, why mention that now? Since he's clearly always been surrounded by whiteness. I think mm-hmm. that speaks to the shaping of his value system. Right. So if you mm-hmm. grew up around mostly white people, you take on many of those values. And, you know, in observing him throughout the years, even way before this, I always thought, I'm be frank with you, I was like, Hubert is really soft. I've always thought he was soft, even though he was on my team and I, he, he won games, helped win games for us and all that. He's a black man who I've never seen with a mustache never seen with a beard. He's always appeared to me <laughs> that he that he has always kept himself. So that makes him soft. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just throwing it out here, yeah. I'm keeping Whiskers it 1,000. Like <laughs> you know, really? yeah, you know, he, he's always seemed to me this to be the sort of brother, yeah, kept to Caesar. He never did anything even remotely <laughs> close to being threatening from a Black man's perspective, you know? And um, I just always felt like he was seeking all always to be that model minority. Yeah, and so I think his value system is probably a little different than those of us who grew up in, you know, more diverse communities and, you know, predominantly Black communities, where we are more likely to be more aligned with the values of typical Black people in this country. So it does appear by his comments that his values are a little different than most of ours, and, and also by observing him over decades. So let's just go back to the soft. Mm-hmm. So when you say soft, do you mean like not presenting as typically masculine or trying to present himself in a way to feel less threatening to the white supremacist power structure that he had to play into as an athlete? Well, I think I've always thought to myself that there's a perception of men who have no facial hair. And I do think that most Black men who never let their facial hair grow are very purposeful about it. There's some people that just say, hey, you know what, this looks good on me. But (laughs) over the course of decades, to never let your facial hair grow and always keep the what I consider to be the most acceptable sort of haircut that a Black man can have, which is, you know, really, really low haircut, no particular style to it. He's, he's the sort of dude that's barely had a shape up half the time. Um, he, <laughs> Coach Davis, if you're listening, the thoughts yeah, of Dark One do not represent fully the tangent talk. <laughs> no, yeah. From my experiences, you know, T off to answer your question, you being, 
you know, a Chi-Town lady, but you know about Atlanta, the supermarket chain, right? I worked. They have for- great sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, they shout out to their sandwiches. But, you know, I worked for, you know, they had a policy that you couldn't have facial hair. And I always kind of associated that to not wanting black men to present as more masculine is based in Lakeland, Florida. And anybody who knows a lot about Florida, you know, there's a lot of history of racism in Lakeland, Florida. So I definitely agree to some degree with what Darquan just said, but I never really knew Hubert Davis as far as his personality. I just knew him as a player. Yeah, I think it ties into a lot of that. It does. And I I think- I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah I am too. I, of course, I've got to give Dark One a hard time just because we like to tease each other and challenge each other, of course. But it's interesting because Jay Bylas, or is it Billis? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. The, uh, I never knew that either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just, just going to call him Jay. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Jay, who's actually 57 years old. He's an American college basketball analyst who currently works for ESPN and CBS Sports. And so We were taking a look at the reactions of many when this breaking news of of Hubert Davis becoming the first Black head coach for UNC men's basketball. He says, I had the honor to work alongside Hubert for many years. He actually tweeted this, uh, Jay Bylas or Billis. I had the honor to work alongside Hubert for many years at ESPN, and I simply don't know a better person. Don't let the smile and laugh fool you. Hubert is a cutthroat competitor with an uncommon understanding of the game, and he bleeds Carolina blue. Hubert is the real deal. Continuing along with the accolades for Coach Davis receiving this great news and, of course, this honor, you know, we have people like Rick Fox who tweeted and were celebrating his accomplishments. So clearly well-respected. And I think the conversation that Dark Juan and Halbera were having is an important one. You know, we talk about, and I, again, I, I know that I, I'm sounding like a broken record now, going back to Dark Juan's comment about toning down Blackness. That's a that's me paraphrasing an earlier comment, Dark Juan. Is it that, because we could spend another 20 minutes on the comment that Coach Davis made, but really in the broader context, how do Black men, how are they allowed to show up in the world? Because this could be a promotion in corporate America, right? Maybe there wouldn't have been a press conference, of course, but as a Black man, you get a promotion. Do you then have to, as they say colloquially, code switch? Do you now have to change up who you go to lunch with? Do you have to change up your your attire. Talk to me, Black men on this cast. Let's take it now, because what Coach Davis has done is given us fodder, and we're discussing this because it's not just about the comment he made. Again, we celebrate diversity. We celebrate the fact that spouses and loved ones acknowledge their loved ones and spouses. The crux of this discussion is really, what did he give up in an opportunity where the spotlight was fully on him? What did he feel that he had to water down when the spotlight was on him? So if we take this in the context of a promotion in a corporate setting, is Coach Davis's, is his behavior, which in this case, he he made a comment, is it indicative of what we do as Black people when we are ascending the ranks of whether it's corporate America or any form of achievement? What What do you say, Black man? Absolutely. It absolutely is. I do it every every workday. 
And I did it in order to make myself more acceptable in my interview process. Those of you who are my family members know I used to have a long head of dreads. And as I used to be interviewing here in the South, I realized, having moved from the North, that the perception of many of my prospective employers was not a positive one for a man with a head full of dreads to be interviewing for the positions that I was interviewing for. And so I cut my hair to a very Hubert Davis-looking mold, and I found that I believe it was impactful in me getting the roles that I ended up getting. You know, and we, we look at certain other, if we take it back to the NBA, we look at players like Jalen Brown, who's got a full, thick, black beard, and James Harden, you know, that full beard. I feel like if you are presenting that way, it's almost a statement of your overt blackness. And that can be threatening to the powers that be when it comes to employment and being upwardly mobile. And I think along with having a certain behavior, let's say, because I don't think I changed mine so much from a behavioral perspective, because I was always aware of this. I communicate a certain way when I'm at work. I carry myself in a certain way that when I'm at work, I'm very careful, especially in how I communicate with white women more so than any other segment at work, because I am cognizant of not being threatening to people, especially when I am a subordinate resource to them. Not that I ever sell out, but I'm very deliberate about my communication in the professional environment and how I present myself. You know, I make sure, generally speaking, when I'm in the office, I'm in a button up. I'm well presented. I try to really do my best to outdress people. I'm one of these people that says I always dress up on dress down Fridays because I think a lot of people come to work and it's like, you know, look at you on a Friday. You're crazy. Yeah, I keep it very professional, very purposefully because I'm aware that our image impacts those who we work with. So now we're really getting to the heart of it and to something Helper brought up earlier. We talk, you know, he, he mentioned tokenism. Why is it that as Black people, we're speaking of Black men today, we have to alter, modify, moderate, you know, the list goes on in order to make others comfortable? Helper, I don't want you to forget your point. Please weigh in, brother. Yeah, just to also give my answer to the previous question you asked, you know, you guys here, my family, you guys know my real name. <laughs> so I've never really. I don't really know who you are. <laughs> I've never really been able to code switch per se when it comes to my professional life. You know, my real name plus my voice, I think it's kind of obvious from a, a surface perspective, my race. And then as just who I am as a person, I've never honestly felt pressured to or felt that I needed to. Perhaps that's played a part in what I have attained versus what I haven't in my education and in my professional life. But I honestly couldn't see myself having to modify who I am in any way. And I honestly, with this conversation, I'm thinking about my past in ways that I may have, but honestly, nothing comes to head. And then also from the perspective of Hubert Davis, I still feel like He's always been his entire life a star athlete. So I don't see in any way where he'd have to. I mean, just keeping it based on North Carolinian players specifically, they had Rasheed Wallace as well. He's one of the, as far as his personality, the most <laughs> crashed players I know. in basketball history. Right. You know what I mean? They had 
Vince Carter, who after every dunk was a member of Omega and would throw up his hooks throughout his career. So I never noticed to a degree of, especially NBA, NBA players having to tone down their blackness in order to get to whatever level they've gotten to in their career or any entertainer, period. There's, there's a difference between being a player and being a coach, though. There's a exactly. difference between being a quote unquote frontline worker and being the boss, yeah. you know, so that yeah. that's the one thing. And yeah, they will. America will be entertained by you in your natural state, but they won't let you own the entertainment company necessarily. Mm. Because how much like with the NFL, I'm, I'm sure it's the same with the NBA. Like what's the percentage of players that are black? It's huge. Yet how many mm. owners are there? Yeah, I mean, and it's a whole different, it's an entirely different culture when we're talking about race relations uh, between, to me, between the NFL and the NBA just in general. I think the NBA, which kind of comes into the argument I just made as well, I think the NBA is a lot more, I don't want to use the word tolerant, but I think it only fits in this conversation, tolerant towards players being able to just express who they are and how they feel as far as race and, you know, race relations. So let's go off on a tangent, shall we? Pun intended. You know, you brought up tokenism earlier in the segment, uh, Helber, and I think it's worth taking a peek at, especially because we're saying we want to take the experience. You know, we're just, this is all conjecture, trying to understand what motivated Hubert Davis's comment during that presser. We're trying to also apply it to corporate or other environments, right? So let's take a look at tokenism. The Merriam-Webster dictionary definition is the practice of doing something such as hiring a person who belongs to a minority group only to prevent criticism and give the appearance that people are being treated fairly. Okay. And so taking a look at that further, and this is an article in Vanderbilt Business News that we will post to our website, taking a look closer at this article, and we're going to show how this is relevant to Hubert Davis. It says, what can businesses do about tokenism? There are three components to preventing tokenism, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Diversity means having students or staff from a variety of backgrounds, including ethnicity, race, gender, socioeconomic class, sexual orientation, and nationality. Equity ensures that everyone has equal access to resources, for example, salaries, networking, and mentors. As the term indicates, inclusivity means that each member, no matter their background, feels welcomed and valued within the group. And it's talking about this panel on diversity and inclusion. And so some of the comments that were, were made here is that one critical step in combating tokenism and encouraging diversity, equity, and inclusion is ensuring that employees aren't called upon to be the lone representative for their entire group. Companies can help forestall tokenism by making sure there's more than one person from each demographic in a group. But I want to get back to this point. One critical step in combating tokenism and encouraging diversity, equity, and inclusion is ensuring that employees aren't called upon to be the lone representative for their entire group. Let's now connect that back to Hubert Davis. Is it possible that it was too much, air quotes, pressure with the title first Black head coach? 
Is it possible he just didn't want to be the lone representative for an entire Black, African-American, however you want to call it, population? Was that too much pressure? And therefore, he found himself, whether directly or indirectly, trying to present diversity. Oh, but you're talking about me being the first Black head coach. What about my white wife and my biracial children? React to that. (laughs) That just sounds crazy. I think he did. I think he did feel some pressure. I think any coach feels pressure being the coach of North Carolina. There are expectations. But I think he did feel some pressure, and I don't think he handled it well. Yeah, I definitely think there's a possibility for that. I also want to speak on Ildris's point he made about having achieved status and being a professional or being a a well-known athlete for decades, and then also connect that to changing how we behave to fit in or, let's say, make people more comfortable. I think Hubert, having grown up where he grew up, didn't have to change because he'd always been that way. So whereas I grew up in a much different, you know, I grew up in New York and in Brooklyn. And when I went away to college, I was very much a typical New Yorker and a Black New Yorker. And I had to learn to behave a little differently in order to make people comfortable around me in numerous different ways. But I think that because of where he grew up, he didn't have to change. He more than likely, from what I've seen, since the moment I've seen him, he's been that way. So he didn't have to change because he'd always had that value system and thought that some things were more valuable in terms of race relations than I think I do. Whereas I felt I needed to change, he had already been set up that way from more than likely from early on, because from the day I first saw him, he was that way. But he wasn't on a national stage per se, right? Now that he has this national attention as being the first Black head coach, maybe as we both are agreeing on, Darquan, maybe that type of pressure forced him, and again, I go back to this article since Helber brought up tokenism, maybe that put too much pressure on him to feel like the lone representative. And I wonder, just in your own personal experiences, we're talking about the men, but, you know, Tioff, have you ever felt And it doesn't matter what the setting is. Maybe it was a dance troupe. Maybe it was a book club. Maybe it was on the job. Maybe it was, you know, when you started your own business. Have you ever felt pressure for being the lone representative for the entire Black African-American group? Have you experienced that? And how did you deal with that? Um, I haven't experienced it in the workplace, but more so in social settings. I always find myself... Well, not always, but in a significant amount of time in my adult life, I've always found myself as the lone Black person in certain social settings. And I personally don't feel a certain way to conform or that I need to tone down my Blackness. It's more just find myself fending off stereotypes and people assuming that I'm a certain way because I'm Black more so than me feeling I needed to behave a certain way so people don't feel uncomfortable around me. That makes sense. And again, I hear, as Dark Wan spoke about, I'm hearing, you know, making sure people feel comfortable. Helper, do we do we need to bear that type of responsibility? Do we as African-American people, for those of you who've been listening to the Tangent Talk, I, I think by now you all know this is a 100% African-American, West Indian-American as well, cast. but do we need to bear that responsibility in making people feel comfortable? Should we should we not just be happy with <laughs> the fact that we are taking up space and darn it, it's our birthright to take up space on this earth? 
Why do we need to be burdened with making people feel comfortable? Because Tioff has spoken to this, Dark One has spoken to this. I have my experiences with it. You may be the only person who, who um, may be a bit rebellious and says, hey, they're just going to have to like me for who I am, except for when you were working with that grocery store. <laughs> so- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the way I conform, right? Because I had to shave. So, but, um, right. you know, now when I introduce myself to, new people professionally and I give them my real name and they say, oh, I'll just call you by, you know, you guys know my first initial. And I'm like, no, I'll give them my whole name. I'm like, I prefer that. Um, <laughs> right. You know, that's that first initial is my friends and family. You know, I don't say that, but that's how I feel. But yeah, I feel like, of course, the burden is on us, us being Black people to make those of us that aren't Black comfortable. Now you have the choice whether you're going to or not. Colin Kaepernick chose not to, and he lost his career because of that, right? As much as those of us that supported what he did wish that wasn't the case, is nothing any of us have been able to do about that, right? So it's a burden, I believe, but at the same time, it's the beautiful things that come with being Black, that come with being Caribbean, that come with living in this beautiful Black city of Atlanta. From me, it is always going to trump that burden. I also agree. It is a burden. We, I don't think we have a choice in it. It's kind of placed on us because we're the minority. We're one of the minorities. I think, too, that adjusting your behavior contextually isn't necessarily being a token because while I have been cognizant of that burden and adjusted my behavior, I have never been a token. And I align it with a book and a movie, one of my favorite movies from, I think, the 70s. It's called The Spook Who Sat by the Door by Robert Greenlee. And it talks about a brother from the hood who went and was one of the first people to join the CIA and how he learned all of the inner workings of the CIA and then took it back to the hood to bolster the revolution. And so I think of myself in that way. And when I have been the lone Black person, let's say in a management training class for you know emerging leaders or whatever, I didn't adjust my behavior to be a token. I communicated in a way that I think would be well-received by the group, but I also felt that there was a responsibility to buck those stereotypes as Tioff said, to let them know that, hey, I'm intelligent, I'm shrewd, I'm a good businessman, and I'm quite capable of being one of the best of these students in this class, and I'm going to show you that I am that. And to put it in simpler terms, while I play the game, I don't do it from a token's perspective. I'm still vehemently an activist at all times in my professional career. However, I spoon feed them that activism in a way that they can consume. Thank you for that, Dark Juan. Well, as we go to our wrap up, you know, this is this is a, a unique one for us, but we are, again, still in the season of race, power, and what's our third component, Helbra? R-E-S-P-C-T. Find out what it means. And so we really wanted to have this conversation. We thought it would be a meaningful conversation to really try to understand. We don't know Coach Davis personally, but try to understand what may have motivated that comment. Of course, unpack some of the criticism for it. 
And at the same time, as we often do here on this cast, we want to apply it to our own lives. If we were in Coach Davis's shoes, how would we have responded if all conditions were equal or the same as far as what and who he is, what he represents, I should say, and who he is. So as we go to our wrap up, I want the cast to to mention anything that they may not have had an opportunity to mention throughout today's segment, as well as what I really want us to also look at is what is our charge when it comes to how we show up, how we present ourselves in the world, in corporate America, so on and so forth, as African-American people? Is it something that we feel we have to adjust or is it something that is dependent on the environment? How do we show up? So as we do our wrap up, I'm going to start with tee off. I think depending on the circumstances, some of us will feel the need or not the need, rather the pressure to adjust so that we do feel like we can be accepted or not feel like a threat. Even how we speak as Black women, for example, anything that we say out of anger or frustration, we're automatically stereotyped as the angry Black woman, even if we are legitimately wrong. And in situations like that, especially in the workplace, we have to be mindful of how we respond to certain situations because of how we will be perceived. But as a people, I just feel like we need to really learn how to dismantle those systems of white supremacy that make us feel like we, we're not free to be ourselves, regardless of who we're married to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, moving to you, Helbra, your uh, wrap up begins now. Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, I, I misspoke about the NBA being much more tolerant to race relations because you can think about another player that played around the same time as Hubert Davis did. Craig Hodges, that was a member of the Bulls in the early 90s. You can look up his story and what he went through in his career. But I agree with a lot of what Tioff just said and what still is present for me at the surface is just how we all identify ourselves is up to us. I just feel that from Hubert Davis's perspective, the only reason why he ended up saying what he said is because he correlates the fact that he's married to a white woman and his children are biracial with the glory that came with him getting that coaching position. Yeah, definitely something to consider. Thank you, Helbra. And what about you, Dark One? Your wrap-up begins now. Yeah, as a diehard Nick fan since the 80s, I have to say that I was disappointed in him in saying that. I do also agree with Ildris that he did connect those two things. As much as I try to see his perspective, I can only see that he sees intrinsic value in being married to a white woman. He doesn't even speak about any of her attributes. That is the thing about it that he's proud of. When you say something like that, you, you should be aware, being an intelligent man, that you really need to expound on that to have people understand what you're really saying. We can only take it for face value. And so given the responsibility that the world has really put on him for being the first Black head coach of North Carolina University, I think it, it'll be really interesting to see how he goes on from that point, because I think it shows just how careful you have to be in a role like that, because there are such profound expectations, not only of excellence, but of being a voice for that university and all of its history. 
And yeah, I, I also agree with Ildris that each person has their own choice and truly their own self-defined responsibilities to themselves and their diaspora, really, if you're a Black person, despite whatever else may be expected of you, you know? So yeah, I, I just think he's got a lot to unpack, really, and possibly a lot to learn and hopefully a lot to teach about his race dynamics. Agreed. Agreed. Well, you know, I love that you talked about Darquan, that we don't really know much about Mrs. Leslie Davis, certainly not from <laughs> Coach Davis during that presser, you know, but what we do know is that they have been married for 22 years. We do know that Mr. and Mrs. Davis uh, met at UNC. They're both UNC graduates, and it would have been nice to hear more about, as you said, her attributes or just how they met. I'm pretty sure he would have had ample time in that almost one hour, if not hour and 10 minute presser to discuss that. We also know that Mr. and Mrs. Davis uh, have raised three, as he put it, and, you know, beautiful children. And and we are uh, looking forward to seeing what this means for his legacy and their family's legacy. And I'll just end with, again, another, another question from the presser, one that I thought was interesting because it spoke to, <laughs> again, my concern that Coach Davis hasn't quite accepted and or isn't quite owning that he deserves to take up space. He deserves it. Okay. And so the question is a few years ago, and I should say he deserves it for his own merit, right? Not because he's married to Leslie Davis, not because they have beautiful biracial children, not because someone thought, yeah, it would be great to finally, (laughs) you know, ensure that there's a black head coach, but because of his merit, So here's the question. A few years ago, I attended a sports journalism camp here, and part of that tour was what used to be Coach Williams' office. So my question to you is, what is it going to be like when you occupy the office of so many of your mentors and heroes, Coach Williams, Coach Dean Smith, and Coach Guthridge? Here's his response. Very interesting. He says, when I heard that Coach Williams was in the office, he was looking at the pitchers and The reason why I wanted to go there, be with him, was because I told him, leave all your pictures up. This is your office. And I told him this for two reasons. This is his home. This is his office. And I want Coach Williams and I want Mrs. Williams and I want all of his children and I want his grandchildren. When they come to games, I want them to go into his office. Now, mind you, This is Luna Ma speaking. This is the office that Coach Davis is to occupy as the new head coach. He goes on to say, the second reason is, and it's selfish, is that it'll make me think he's still here. And it's a beautiful comment that he makes that he wants to feel that his mentor and hero is still there. But my question or more so comment to Coach Davis is he's had his time. Right. Coach Williams has had his time. He's, he's retired. Let him take his pictures with him. <laughs> you know, let let his family come now and see your office, Coach Davis, with your pictures up. And so I think my wrap up is simply whether you're Coach Davis or a young man or woman or a seasoned man or woman getting an, a, a promotion at work, getting an acknowledgement for something great that you did to contribute to your environment, own it. You deserve to occupy that space. You deserve to decorate that space with your artifacts, your memorabilia. You deserve what you have earned. 
And so with that, we want to thank you once more for joining us here at the Tangent Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, please come back. And from all of us here at the Tangent Talk, thank you so much for your listenership. We do this for you. We do this because of you. And we hope you come back and join us soon. Thanks, everyone. 